passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching people with Jesus. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxis. Um, if you're new, my name is Kurt. I'm one of the pastors, and it's great to have you. We are, as a church, preaching through the book of 1 Samuel. Today, we will find ourselves in 1 Samuel chapter 24. And if you're uh, somebody who's new, let me just take a brief moment to catch you up on what's been going on in this book. Um, we've seen that it's been sort of a consistent theme. It's The section of this book is Saul is chasing David. Saul is trying to kill David. Uh, David, we saw uh, last week, he was in the wilderness of Ziph, which is 600 men. And when we think of the wilderness, we think of a place with trees and animals and streams. But as I showed you last week, the wilderness of Ziph wasn't that way for David and his men. It was a barren desert. And the reason that David and his men were hiding there is because Saul and his men wouldn't dare even go there. It was a very tough time for David. It was hard for David being pursued by King Saul, who wanted to kill him from no other point than he was jealous of him. Then we got to the end of the chapter. We saw that Saul eventually found David, and the chase was on. David and his men running, and Saul and his army pursuing. And then it said that David and his men were on one side of a mountain, and Saul and his men were on the other side of a mountain. And as I told you, what was going on was Saul was trying to perform sort of a, a pincer maneuver. He was trying to have his large army circle the bottom of the mountain to cut off David and his men as they flee down the mountain. And if he had successfully done that, it would have been curtain for David's, David and all of his men. But as God always does, he has a way of coming to the rescue at just the last minute in the exactly the right way. A messenger arrived at the last minute and said to Saul, by the way, the Philistines have invaded the land. If you don't return now and defend the land, there'll be no kingdom for you to come back to. And just before the pincher sucked, Saul and his men were in full retreat. And David lived to survive another day. Now, as we got to the very end of the last chapter, it said that David and his men uh, left there, and they went to a place known as the En Gedi. Let me show you where it is on a map. This is the En Gedi, and what I, what I want to point out for you is notice it's next to a body of water. Now, that's the Dead Sea, not the kind of water you want to drink, but at least it's a much more arid place. At least it's an area that there's more to drink, which personally, if you ask me, is a lot better than trying to hide out in the desert. Just a slight improvement here. Now, as we get into chapter 24, which is where we're going to be today, once again, it's Saul chasing David, another chapter of the same thing. But it's going to go in a different direction than what we've seen. This chapter divides into three sections. The first part is actually about David sparing Saul's life, not Saul sparing David's life. Then we're going to see in the second part the importance of kind words, and lastly, we're going to see how David sparing Saul's life and these kinds words actually changed Saul's heart, at least temporarily. Incidentally, there's going to be a lot of practical application for life in this chapter. If you're somebody who struggles with respecting leaders over you, there's a lot in this chapter for you. If you're somebody who struggles in conflict, and sometimes you say things you wish you hadn't said, 
this chapter will have a lot for you. Great application here. So let's dive right in and begin. The first point we need to see is this. It's the first section where we find not every opportunity, by the way, is God's will. Verse 1. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of, the, of En Gedi. Uh, the, the text completely skips over Saul's battle with the Philistines. Obviously, he won, or he wouldn't be back chasing David. But as soon as he is done with the Philistines, he's right back at David once again, heading down to the En Gedi. And as I showed you on the map, it's a region by the Dead Sea. It's an area with a lot of rock cliffs. And what makes this area interesting is it has numerous caves. Well, thank you for putting that up. It has numerous caves in the walls. This is a section of what it looks like. These caves go deep back into the rock, and actually deep inside the rock, they actually connect with one another. So you can sort of be like a gopher where you go in one hole and you come out the other hole. Uh, that's what this area is like. And as I told you earlier, it's a region that has water. While the Dead Sea is not something you'd want to drink, there's a number of springs that come down the side. Go ahead and put that the spring picture up. This is a, a spring actually from the En Gedi. So much better for David and his men. You can actually find something to drink. You have a nice cool place to hide. And you can, you know, nice shelter in this area. And we read this. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel, and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. Remember, David has 600 men at this point. Saul is chasing him with 3,000 men. Do the math, that's a five-to-one advantage that Saul has over David. And these men are not just ordinary soldiers. These are his Green Berets. These are his special operation soldiers. These are the best of the best. And you remember, what are David's men? As we've seen in the earlier chapters, they're the misfits. They're the rejects. They're the discards of society. So David is outnumbered, and he's overmatched when it comes to the military. Which, by the way, this sort of sounds like a theme we commonly see in this book so far, isn't it? Where David is overmatched. And then we, and it says, by the way, he was going next to, uh, they're right in front of the wild goat's rock. Now, what is that? I'll throw that up. It's a rock where wild goats, mountain goats, hang out. That is not the rock. I just Googled wild goats. So, uh, I just thought I needed a graphic to help you on that and get a good laugh out of it. But here's where it gets interesting. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. So what we find where these rock cliffs are with all these caves in them, there's a sheepfold in the bottom because we know this is an arid region where there's springs, there's grass, there's water. Shepherds have their sheep here and they keep them in the sheepfold at this time. And one of the caves is right there, sort of close to ground level on the rock. And Saul has a sudden and irresistible urge to use the bathroom. And so Saul stops the soldiers and goes in. Now, by the way, this only happens if you're the king. 
you can stop all 3,000 soldiers and use the restroom when you want to. I guarantee you, none of the other 3,000 soldiers could stop the entire army and use the restroom if they wanted. They would have to hold it. But not King Saul. Well, he's special. And this particular potty break on the king's part gets very interesting. It says, now David and his men were sitting in the inmost part of the cave. Oh boy. A lot to think about in these verses. Who prompted Saul's bowels at that particular time that he had an irresistible and uncontrollable urge that he had to use the bathroom now? Thank you, Tom. I always know I can get a good answer out of him. God, well, I know this sounds silly, and this may be a bit humorous, but if God directed Saul into this particular cave at this particular time by a sudden and irresistible urge to use the bathroom, God can also direct us where he wants us to go in any particular time by giving us a sudden and irresistible urge to use the bathroom as well. It's true. Now, I say this to have a little bit of humor with you, but, you know, think about this, parents. You're on that road trip, and what do you always hear from the back seat? Yes! Mommy, I have to go, and I have to go now! Now, usually we're just about completely freaked out in that moment, but maybe God has given your child a sudden and irresistible urge to use the bathroom to get you where he wants you to go for a reason. It's true, because God is in charge of all things, even potty breaks. The other thing we read here is that Saul went in to relieve himself. The Hebrew text is a little bit more interesting. It says Saul went in and he uncovered his feet. So he's not just going in to go to the bathroom, but he, not wanting to soil the royal robes, he sort of disrobes. He takes off his royal robes, he takes off his sword and all those things that would be binding him up and he is either completely naked or almost completely naked sitting on a rock deep in the cave most likely facing the front of the cave so he can get some light to sort of see what he's doing. That should be about the most vulnerable and compromising position you can find yourself in. And who is right behind him? David and his men. Let me read this. And the men of David said to him, Ah, here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. David's men were convinced This moment was a gift from God. We have been running for how many years? We've been scraping to survive in the desert. He is constantly trying to kill you. He's murdered the priests of Nob. This is the moment we've been waiting for. God's given it to you. And then I like what he says. They say this, they try to quote God to him. Behold, I shall give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. This is what God's told you about. But here's the problem, folks. God actually never said that. 
the closest we get is God said he will give the Philistines into your hands, not your enemy into your hands, and you shall do to them anything that seems good to you. So his men are actually twisting God's words ever so slightly to encourage him, encourage David to take vengeance on Saul. Now, up to this point, we've seen that Saul has clearly stated that David is his enemy. Saul has tried way more than a dozen times to take David's life. But has David ever designated Saul as his enemy? Has David ever tried to take Saul's life? Absolutely not, that's right. In fact, if you go back a little earlier, and you're with us when we talked about the priests of Nob, remember what Ahimelech said about David? David's not conspiring against you. There is nobody more loyal to you in all your kingdom than David. Just because Saul wants to kill David does not necessarily mean that David should want to kill Saul. Now, if Saul caught David on a potty break in a, in a cave, I guarantee you he would kill him. But that does not necessarily mean that now that David has caught Saul on a potty break, he should key, kill him. I want you to enter into the thoughts about how incredibly tempting, though, it would be for David to put this all to an end in this moment. He knows that God has declared for he would be king. He knows that Saul has murdered all the priests. He knows Saul is a terrible king. He's vicious. He's harsh. Nobody likes him. He knows that this could be the moment. But to get rid of the king, he would have to murder him in his most vulnerable position yet. So David begins to move forward. Sword in hand, ever so closely and quietly, stealthily, he begins coming from the back of the cave. He goes all the way to about one foot away from Saul as Saul is concentrating in his position. And the sword of David comes up. And then we read these words. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Instead of that sword coming down around Saul's neck, it came down on the corner of his robe and just cut off a piece. Now, I was thinking about that this week. We have kitchen knives. When you're cutting something in the kitchen, can you hear when the knife cuts through something? Yes, because that knife is actually tearing it's not like really officially cutting. When you use scissors, you can hear scissors tearing. But did you know if a knife is sharp enough, it doesn't make a sound? Um, some of you may know my middle son, Daniel, he works for a knife sharpening company down in Ames, and they sharp, sharpen the knives for the slaughterhouses around here. And they make some of the sharpest knives in the world, so effortlessly it cuts right through an animal in utter silence. How sharp do you think David's sword is in this moment? To cut off the, cutter, the corner of Saul's robe right next to him and him not to hear a thing. 
it's that's right it's razor sharp imagine if he had decided to put that sword on Saul's neck in one moment it would have been over with now then we read this after Saul, David has gone back into the cave with this piece of cloth and afterward David's heart struck him because he had cut off the corner of Saul's robe David feels bad he even did this, this little offense. Now, why does he feel bad for this? Here's the answer. This is the first time he has ever shown the slight bit of vindictiveness towards Saul. This is the first time he's done anything harmful or even mildly injurious toward Saul. And he realizes that was absolutely like very hard thing to do. It's not the right thing. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put my, out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. David realizes that by cutting off the corner of his robe, he was insulting the man that God has put in power and the man that God up to this point has kept in power at least for now. For now, it was God's will that Saul was king. God had made Saul king, and God would take Saul out of being king. Not that it was not God's will for David to do a wicked thing and murder the king. Now, would David one day be king? Yes, he would. But God would put him in, in God's way. It was not God's will for David to become king by murdering the king, even though Saul was a wicked man. And then we read this. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. I'm not a real fan of the ESV translation here where it says David persuaded his men because the Hebrew is much more graphic. It says David tore his men apart with his words. In the back of the cave, there was an argument going on when he came back with that piece of cloth. They're going, you're afraid to kill him? I'm not afraid to kill him. Let me at him. And David's, no, I'll go and get him, says another guy. No, constantly trying to restrain his men who were so eager to take David's, Saul's life out. Now, at this point, I want to pause because there's a little bit of text we covered, but there's a lot of great application that we've um, on earth. The first one is this. Just because God provides an opportunity does not mean it's God's will for me to take advantage of the opportunity. Sometimes what looks like a God-given opportunity is actually a test of my heart. When Jonah found a ship bound for Tarshish, the exact opposite direction of Nineveh, where God had told him to go, was the fact the ship was there revealing God's will? It was a test of Jonah's will. This opportunity that David has to take out King Saul is not revealing God's will. It's testing David's will. What kind of man will he be? When he sees an opportunity to take the right thing but get it in the wrong way, Will he do it? 
And folks, this is a temptation we face all the time. We see an opportunity to get something we want, but there's, we have to get it the wrong way. And so many times we think it's God's will for us to go after it. Take finances, for instance. Maybe you are desperately wanting a big screen TV and you don't have enough money for one. But you come home and that day you find that they've sent you a new credit card in the mail. And you open the Lakes New Shopper and see a big TV on sale for 10% off. Well, it must be God's will. I have a credit card and a discount. Or maybe it's God's test to see if you're greedy and if you're a materialist. We see this all the time in relationships. Sometimes we find uh, people who are in a difficult marriage. And as that marriage struggles, somebody finds somebody at work who just seems to have that special spark and there's that chemistry that just takes off there and you say, well, this must be God's will for me to like divorce my spouse and and marry this new person because I'm so happy with them. Maybe that opportunity is not God's will for you. Maybe that opportunity is God's test of you. Will you be faithful? Will you stay faithful to your vows and true to your spouse? So do what seems easy to get the happiness you want. Sometimes I see this with people who are young and who are struggling to find somebody to date who knows and loves Jesus Christ and they're lonely and you know they're in that Starbucks line and there's somebody behind them and the barista gets their orders backwards and switches them and you, so you have to talk to the person and then all of a sudden you find out you like the person and this person doesn't know Jesus at all but they're a really nice person and they say, they say Pastor Kurt, I know it's God's will because the barista switched our orders Maybe that's not God's will for you. Maybe that's God's test of you. That will you go after the easy relationship or will you continue to wait for the right relationship? What will you do? And this is exactly what's going on here. Sometimes when we see the opportunity to get something we want, but we have to violate God's will to do it, it's a test, a test of our heart. And that's what's going on. Another application here. I am to honor and respect those God put in leadership over me, even if I do not agree with them. David, as you know, chose to respect Saul, the leader of the nation. Even though Saul was a bad leader, he was a paranoid leader, he was a murderous leader, David still chose to respect him because that was the leader God had put in place over him. Today in our culture, the media especially tells us to despise leaders, tells us to undermine leaders, and tells us to criticize leaders. Isn't that what the media is always telling you? Doesn't matter what party they're part of. And so we get this thing in our system that we always distrust leaders. We always undermine leaders. That is not the way for God's people. Now, this is not something we just talk about politically on a national level, but those of you who work in a factory, those of you who work in a business, isn't it true that when the people on the floor start to disrespect leaders and undermine leaders, doesn't it produce chaos? Doesn't it produce confusion? Doesn't it undermine the whole productivity of the company? Yes. 
Now, this can also happen in a, in a church. Sometimes people don't like leaders. But oftentimes in a church, the differences that people have are not salvation issues. They're not theological issues. They're merely strategy issues. They're merely secondary issues. Now, what struck me is if David was willing to respect and refuse to undermine a very sinful, wicked leader who wanted to murder him, how much more important is it for us as Christians that we don't disrespect we don't undermine the leaders that God has put over us in our life. Oftentimes when the differences we have are simply style and strategy. Now, 1 Thessalonians 5 says this, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace amongst yourselves. Or Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they're keeping watch over your soul as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Those who are leaders over us, who are keeping watch over us, their work should not be groaning. It should be of joy. And here's what it says, because when their work is groaning, because of division and divisiveness, it's of no advantage to you, plural. It's of no advantage to the entire body. Let me put this bullet point. I put it down because I want to make sure it was clear. If David felt convicted about disrespecting a murderous king when all he did was cut off the corner of his robe, I shall feel convicted if I find myself speaking divisively or disrespectively towards church leaders who are simply doing things differently from the way I would do them. Now, I gave you some New Testament quotes about respecting those who are in leader, but there's plenty of stuff in the Old Testament too. Exodus 22, 28. You shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. Or Leviticus 19.18, and we'll come back to this and study this a little more in a moment. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself, for I am the Lord. So that ends the first section where David spares Saul's life. And we see the respect of leaders, and we see how every opportunity isn't always God's will. Let's look at this next section, where it's all about a soft answer turning away wrath. Saul finishes his uh, business, should we call it, in the cave, and he begins to walk out of the cave. He's some distance away from the cave, and David pops out of the cave like a cuckoo coming out of a clock. Can you picture that? And this is what he says. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave, and he called after Saul, My Lord, the King. Can you imagine what it was like for Saul in that moment when all of a sudden behind him he heard David's voice? And that sudden realization that what he thought was a complete place of safety for him with 3,000 troops guarding the front door for him was actually the scariest place he could be because David and his men were right behind him the whole 
time. But notice how David speaks here. He doesn't say, yo, Saul, you fruitcake. He doesn't disrespect him or undermine him. He says, my Lord the King. Incredible respect and softness in his words. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. After all those years of pain, all those years of running, after all the hurt that Saul had done to him, do you think it would have naturally come to David to want to bow before this man, to speak kindly to this man and respectfully to him? It's not natural, but it's the right thing to do because as long as Saul was king, David was committed to honoring his king, him as king. And here, I think, is a verse from Proverbs that sums up what's going on here, and it's this. A soft answer turns away rash, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Folks, whenever you are in a tense situation, whether that's at work, whether that's at home in your marriage with your spouse, or whether that's with your kids when they're getting under your skin, speak kindly, speak gently, speak respectfully, speak softly, especially when people expect hatred or hurtful words to come to you from your lips. That's what David is doing here. This is David's strategy to de-escalate the tension in the situation. If you're following along in your outlines, I put this as a bullet point. In a tense relationship, I'm to be gentle with my words. I'm not to raise my voice and to belittle people. And it continues with more of David's strategy to de-escalate a tense relationship. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Let me clue you in here. There's a strategy David is using to de-escalate. He says, why do you listen to the people who are saying that I am committed to killing you? So far in this book, the only person we have seen who is committed to killing David is Saul. But David does not take his finger and poke it in the middle of Saul's chest. Because, you know, that would just raise the conflict, wouldn't it? It would get more irritating. So he deflects it sideways and says, why are you listening to people who are saying that I'm against you? Saul, you've been deceived by people who are saying the wrong thing to you. What this is doing is it's allowing a lot of grace. It's allowing Saul to have a great deal of room for repentance. Do you see that? David is using something called the judgment of charity with Saul. When you're in a conflict with somebody, you always assume the best thing about them and their motives. You do not start by assuming the worst thing about them and their motives. If you start by assuming the worst thing, I guarantee you it's going to be a mess. Assume the best. And notice how the next strategy that David uses, he says, by the way, I didn't listen to people who told me that I should kill you. Now I want you to stop listening to people 
who are telling you you should kill me. See, I did what I want you to do. See how he's all trying so carefully to de-escalate the situation? And then he makes a promise. He says, I will not retouch you. I will respect your position as king. You are the Lord's anointed. What a great thing for us. Will we respect the, the person that God has put in a position over us, whether that is at work, whether that is a teacher at school, whether that is a parent in the home? Will we respect them or will we undermine them? David refuses to disrespect. And here I, here's the application I wanted to pull out for you. I talked about it earlier, but it's a bullet point for you. In a tense relationship, I am to be overly gracious and assume the best of people, not harsh and assume the worst. My words should subdue tensions, not inflame them. Proverbs speaks about this. Gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. Proverbs 15, 26. The thoughts of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord, but gracious words are pure. And then David continues. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand, for by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. You want proof that I'm not against you? I was right next to you, one foot away from you, with my sword in my hand, and all I did was take this. That's the evidence. And then he says this, may the Lord judge between me and you, and may the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. Notice this. David does not say, by the way, oh, Saul, you have no sin. Saul knows he has a lot of sin. He's done a lot of evil. But what David says is, I'll tell you one thing. I am not going to be the one to try and get revenge against you. I'm leaving this whole thing in God's hands. God is the one who'll have to take revenge. From me, I will always do good to you. You have to see what God will handle with you. No matter how many times Saul has hurt David, David was committed to doing good for him. See, here's the problem. When we like to take revenge on people, when people hurt us and we try to get even with them, when people yell at us, we want to yell back at them. What it always does is it always escalates, doesn't it? Because when they hurt us, we take on the pain and we think, well, they've done such a bad thing to us, so I'm going to do something even worse to them. And then they feel, how could you do that? And I'm going to do something worse to you. And it just gets higher and higher and worse and worse, and the relationships tear apart. The only way it ends is if somebody says, I'm going to stop. I'm not going to take revenge. I'm going to leave this all in God's hands because he's the only one who can be a just judge anyway. He's the only one who knows all the facts. And folks, 
every single one of us will stand before the very just judge of the universe. We'll stand before Jesus Christ. But the good news is, those who have trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior, who has died in their place for their sins, there will be justice. But Jesus Christ will take the punishment we deserve for our sins. Because God is the only one who is the totally just and totally fair judge. Now, what do we do when people irritate us? What do we do when people undermine us? What do we do when we have those difficult people around us? The Bible gives us some very clear instructions. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And then Leviticus 19.18. We often know the back end of this verse, but we miss the front end. The front end is very good. You shall not take vengeance. As Christians, we don't try to get even with somebody who hurt us. Never. Or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. When somebody hurts us and we hold on to that wound and we will not forget that wound and years later we're still bringing up that room, that wound, that's called holding a grudge. And that is not to be named among God's people. What is it to be? But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. We're to be known for how we love people, not how we get revenge on people and how we hold a grudge on people. Folks, some of you are young enough that you'll be alive and someday I'll be dead. I'll be six feet under in the ground and there'll be a tombstone there. And you may visit my grave. You may walk over my dead body. But when you do that, I'm going to tell you what I want to come to mind. What I want to come to mind about your pastor is he loved Jesus and he loved you. If what comes to mind is that he wanted to get even or he held on to a grudge, I've miserably failed. But that's not just true of me. That is true for every single one of us. One day, every one of us, barring Jesus' return, will be in that grave. One day, people that know us and remember us will walk over our grave and will have memories about us. What do you want those memories to be? that you couldn't get over a wound, you couldn't get beyond a hurt, that you were determined to get even, or that you love Jesus and you passionately love people. What's our legacy that we want to choose to leave? And then David moves on and says this, as the proverb of the ancients say, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. What this proverb simply means is wicked things come out of wicked people. That when you're under stress, what comes out of you is the true state of your heart that is within you. That David, when he saw Saul in the cave, Saul, the king that God has anointed and God is continuing at this point to sustain. If David came up behind him and murdered him 
because of all the hurt that Saul had done to him, that would reveal the wickedness of David's heart. Folks, the same is true for us. When you are under stress, when people are hurting you, when the hours are long for you, when people irritate you and annoy you, and you start to use your mouth to use your words to cut people down and tear people up, they are not putting sin in our hearts. That stress is only revealing the sin that actually is already alive and well in our hearts. And when we see it, the proper response is, Lord Jesus, forgive me, I repent. I need your grace. Don't blame it on others in stretches and situations. It reveals the state of our heart. And in case you doubt me, think about Jesus. Jesus, who was whipped. Jesus, who had the cat of nine tails tearing his flesh off his body. Isaiah says Jesus was so disfigured after his beating. The question was not who is it. The question was what is it? He no longer looked like a human being. And as they stretched out his hands and pounded nails through his wrists, at any point in that did Jesus begin cussing out his executioners? Did Jesus begin swearing and had profanity and hatred coming off his lips? Absolutely not. Because the stress in Jesus' life revealed the purity of his heart, not the sinfulness of his heart. And as this proverb says, out of the wicked comes wickedness. So David will not kill King Saul. It would be a wicked thing to do in a tense situation. Bullet point here for you. Tense relationships reveal the sinfulness of my own heart. They don't create sinfulness in my heart. Now, Romans 12, let me read you the full section here because I think it's wonderful. If possible, so far as it depends on you, Live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Isn't that what David is doing at this moment? Refusing to get even with Saul? For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. When people uh, irritate us and when they frustrate us and we're angry at them, you know what the scriptures say we should do? Go out of our way to do good for them. Go out of our way to love on them. Go out of our way to encourage them and to go out of our way to build a relationship with them, not tear down a relationship with them. Usually when people are difficult, we try to avoid them. Isn't that what we do? The scriptures say we pursue them and we love on them. Wouldn't that make a huge difference if as Christians we lived this way? Wouldn't it? Anybody? Yes, it's huge. As a Christian, I must be... I must be known for going out of my way to do good deeds for people that are hard for me to love. I am to overcome evil with good works. Then we read this. And after whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog, after a flea. In other words, I'm harmless to you. I would never do anything to hurt you. And he says, may the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you. 
and see it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. I'm not going to deliver myself. I'm going to trust the Lord to deliver me. Now what will happen? David has spared Saul's life in the cave. He's spoken graciously and kindly to Saul when he came out of the cave. Will Saul listen? Let's find out. The title of this section is A Soft Tongue Breaks a Bone. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son, David? You've been with us earlier. You know that he typically calls him the son of Jesse. And that's actually an insult, refusing to use his name. Here he not only uses his name, but he says, My son, David. These words, kind words from David's mouth, pierce Saul deeper than David's sword ever could. See the power of these kinds words? Look what Saul does. Saul lifted up his voice and he wept. This is not a little weeping. Saul breaks down in tears in front of David and all 3,000 of his troops. What has happened here? Proverbs describes this. Proverbs 25, 15. With patience, a ruler may be persuaded and a soft tongue will break a bone. David's kind words have broken Saul's heart. And he said to David, you're more righteous than I. For you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. You have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for all the good that you have done to me this day. Think who hears these words. All 3,000 of Saul's troops who are hunting David. David and all 600 of his men see the change in Saul's heart from David's kind words. And then he says this, And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. What is the one thing that Saul has been fighting ever since David came on the scene? David shall not be king. I should be the king. I have to be number one around here. I'm threatened by, Saul, by David. Here in this moment, he speaks the truth. He's known in his heart that he's been unwilling to face in his life. David, you will be king. And by your actions, you have proved that you actually deserve to be king because you didn't take vengeance on me but you showed kindness to me. And then he says, Swear to me therefore by the Lord that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. And Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. And they separated. And at least for today and for a period of time, Saul's heart is changed and he's no longer pursuing David. Now, folks, there was a lot of application. Let me quickly run through this. I put them at the end here in your outline. If God opens an opportunity, that doesn't mean it's God's will for me to take the opportunity, especially if it involves getting something I want the wrong way. 
It's a test to see what we will do. Number two, I am to respect those God put in leadership over me. If David honored a murderous king, I should honor the Christian leaders God has put over me, who often only differ differ with me in style and strategy anyway. Number three, in conflicts, I am to use my words graciously, not to belittle or to insult people. Number four, it's God's job to take revenge. As a Christian, I am to be known for loving my enemies, not how I get even with my enemies. Number five, when I'm irritated in a relationship, that frustration reveals the sinfulness in my heart. It doesn't create sinfulness in my heart. It reveals it. Number six, soft words break bones and persuade hearts. Harsh words only stir up anger. And lastly is this. Jesus, by the way, is the ultimate example of kindness and grace in the face of an enemy as he died on the cross in our place for our sin. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. As your word has taught us how to handle the conflicts we face, may we not be people who seek to kill our enemies, who seek to take revenge on our enemies, who seek to hold a grudge for enemies. But like David refused to harm Saul, may we refuse to harm those who have set themselves against us. May we be men and women who in the midst of conflicts use kind words, gracious words, respectful words. And may the soft words, the respectful words we use break the bones of those who are enemies of us because of our softness and our kindness and our love as we trust our conflicts into your hands. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. A complete archive of sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thank you for being with us and may God continue to enrich your life.